don't you love driving into a small town in the middle of nowhere and seeing a big sign at the city limits that says, uh, this is the home of, you know, whatever, something famous that originated there. Like if you drive into Seymour, Wisconsin, anybody from Seymour? Okay, big sign, home of the hamburger. Did you know that? Back in 1884, a dude named Charlie Nagreen put a beef patty on a bun, called it a hamburger, started selling it. I, I had a guy here last night at our Christmas Eve service who's a relation of Charlie Nagreen. He started to cheer after I said that. Ever been to Seymour, Wisconsin, home of the hamburger? Let me throw a few famous items your way, and you call out where they originated, okay, where they, where they were born. And I'll make it real easy for you. Don't have to name the town, just the state. So you got a 1 in 50 chance of getting this right. Okay, here's the first one. Home of the rodeo. What state? Ah, I hear a lot of people calling it out at our other campuses as well. I hear a lot of Texas. Heard some Wyoming. You're close. Colorado. Deer Trail. Here's what surprised me about this one. How late the rodeo came about. It was birthed in 1969. That was the first competition among cowboys. I would have thought late 1800s. Something like that. Okay, here's another one. Home of the roller coaster. What state? Pennsylvania, Ohio. I know what park you've been to. Okay. It's Coney Island, New York. This happened just a year after Charlie Nagreen came up with the hamburger. 1885, they came up with the first roller coaster at Coney Island. You would climb to the top of this platform, sit on a bench in a little car, ride down a slope and up the other side, and that was it. Big difference today. World's biggest roller coaster, the King Ka in New Jersey. It begins with a 400-foot four, vertical drop, after which you're doing 128 miles per hour in 3.5 seconds. That's a roller coaster, okay? Give you an easier one. Home of the cell phone. Where do you think? Yeah, you're thinking the tech areas of California, but you're wrong. You should know this one. Yeah, yeah, Schaumburg, Illinois. Yeah, some dude working for Motorola back in 1973 came up with it. Uh, one more. Home of the world's largest ball of twine. It's a big one. I mean, just think, where, where would you have lots of time on your hands to do nothing Darwin, Minnesota. All those cold months, Francis Johnson was sitting around adding twine to a ball, ended up with a ball of twine 40 feet around, over 17,000 pounds in weight. Honey, let's get the car. Kids in the car, let's go to Darwin, Minnesota, right? Some crazy birthplaces out there. Well, today we're going to take a look at a very important birthplace, the most significant birthplace of all. Of course, it's Christmas Eve. We're talking about the birthplace of Jesus Christ. And this is actually the third installment in a four-part series we've been doing at Christ Community Church called Christmas on Location. We've been considering four important places associated with the story of Jesus and the original Christmas. And so far in the series, we've reflected on Nazareth. That's where Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, where Jesus later grew up. And then, then we moved to Jerusalem, you know, the spot where a, a band of traveling magi, wise men, show up announcing that they're there to celebrate the birth of a new king. 
Well, today it's, it's Bethlehem, a little village five miles to the south of Jerusalem where Jesus was born. Now, if you go to Bethlehem today, I've been there several times myself, if you go to Bethlehem, you'll, you'll be surprised it's not what you expect. Okay, if you're expecting to see, well, this is the original stable, and like there's the manger, they still got it set up there with some straw, you know, it's not what you're going to find. In, in fact, the first thing that will somewhat startle you is Bethlehem is in Palestinian-controlled territory, which means you have to go through an armed checkpoint. So it doesn't feel like the original Christmas story when you're driving past guys with, you know, who are armed to the teeth with semi-automatic weapons. And then, then your tour bus drops you off at the Church of the Nativity, a church that dates back to A.D. 565, supposedly built over the place, the cave, where Jesus was born. Now, if you're able to elbow your way into the Church of the Nativity, uh, it is jam-packed with candles and icons and paintings and, and lots of rude tourists elbowing their way to see the spot where Jesus was born. So modern-day Bethlehem, nothing like the Bethlehem of the very first Christmas. So today, I want to take you back to ancient Bethlehem and tell you about three things for which this town was known. In fact, long before Jesus' birth, Bethlehem was the home of these three things, all three of which pointed to Jesus' eventual arrival. If you'd like to follow along in our study guide, you want might want to turn to that in your program. Fill it in as we go. Three things for which Bethlehem was known. Number one, it was the home of the kinsman redeemer. You say, what in the world is a kinsman redeemer? Well, i got to tell it, take you to an Old Testament book for that, the Old Testament book of Ruth. In fact, in Ruth, we find one of the earliest mentions of the town of Bethlehem. It's just a, a short story and. In fact, it's only four chapters long if you follow Scripture Union's daily Bible reading schedule, which we, inquire, we, we encourage folks at Christ Community to follow. Uh, you read Ruth recently, a riveting little story, four chapters, and it opens in Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem, of course, is located in the country of Israel, and at this point in their history, it's pre-kings. They, they don't have any rulers. Uh, Everyone does, according to what Scripture says, everyone does what they see fit to do, what's right in their own eyes. So it's total chaos. Not only that, the whole country's going through a town of famine, which is somewhat ironic if you're living in the town of Bethlehem. You remember this if you were here early to the service today. We ran a little quiz by you. The Hebrew na name Bethlehem means house of what? bread. So you're living in the house of bread and there's no bread. Which is why Naomi, who lives in Bethlehem, decides to leave town and move to the country of Moab, the neighboring country of Moab. She's accompanied by her family, a husband and two sons, looking for bread, looking for food to eat. They settle in Moab. The two boys grow up. They marry local girls, two Moabite girls. And then tragedy strikes the family. All the men die. So Naomi loses a husband and two sons, and suddenly we have a story about three widows. About this time, Naomi hears that the famine has passed back in Israel, so she decides to return to Bethlehem, her hometown. And she just assumes neither of her daughters-in-law are going to go with her because they've been born and raised in Moab. They're going to stay where their families are. But one of them, Ruth, says, no, I insist, I'm coming with you to Bethlehem. 
And so these two destitute women arrive in Bethlehem. They've got no food, they've got no shelter, they've got no money, they've got no jobs, they've got no men, and in the culture of that day, if you didn't have a man to protect you, a husband, a brother, a father, you were in deep weeds. They arrive back in Bethlehem destitute. Well, Naomi sends Ruth out to look for some food. She says, go to a local field, a farmer's field, and just follow the harvesters, and whatever they drop, pick up. Now, there was actually an, an ancient law in Israel that said, if you're a farmer and you're harvesting grain and your workers drop grain on the ground, you got to leave it there. You can't pick it up. That grain is for, for poor people to pick up. It was the welfare system of the day. So Ruth finds herself in a field of a guy named Boaz. Boaz comes by, sees a new woman, in the field, introduces himself. He takes a shine to Ruth. He takes his workers aside and says, listen, drop a lot of grain. Okay, guys, just, you know, let it fall. Oops, you know. And so Ruth is walking behind these guys, gathering all this grain, and she gets home that night, and she's got an armload of food. And she says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. I was in a field of a guy named Boaz. And the minute she says Boaz, Naomi lights up. She says, Boaz? Listen to what Scripture says, Ruth 2, verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man, that Boaz, is our relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Okay, this expression, guardian redeemer, was actually a legal term in Old Testament times. If you were destitute, okay, if you lost everything, but you happen to have a relative who had some financial means and that relative wanted to help you out, wanted to bail you out, wanted to meet your needs, maybe even wanted to re repurchase, was willing to repurchase a home or property that you had sold to pay your bills, he would be considered, this benevolent person, a guardian redeemer. Now that's the expression in the NIV translation of the Bible that we use here at Christ Community Church. An older edition of the NIV translates it as kinsman redeemer. Now, they changed it to guardian redeemer. They figured today nobody knows what a kinsman is. We don't use that word. But I actually like kinsman redeemer better than guardian redeemer because it accentuates the fact that this benevolent person who bails you out has to be a relative. Okay, it's got to be an extended member of your family. So Boaz, Boaz has the potential to be a kinsman redeemer. He's got the capability of coming to the rescue of Naomi and Ruth. The big question is, will he? See, it's totally his decision. Now, I'll let you read the details of the story sometime for yourself, but you know, in summary, Boaz chooses to step up to the role. Boaz chooses to become the kinsman redeemer for these two destitute, destitute relatives, the widows, Naomi and Ruth. And the story gets even better Okay, spoiler alert here, if you're going to read it on your own. The guy gets the girl, okay? So Boaz ends up marrying Ruth. In fact, it's even better than that. Uh, Ruth is the one who proposes to Boaz, which was unthinkable in that culture. It's, it's a pretty neat story, and it gets even better than that. So Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son, listen, Jesse has a son named David. And we're talking now about the David. We're talking about King David. 
Israel's most famous king. We're talking about the king whose eventual descendant would be, who do you think? Jesus. Jesus, who is born in this same village, Bethlehem. Jesus, who becomes, don't miss this part, Jesus, who becomes a kinsman redeemer like his great ancestor Boaz. In fact, Jesus becomes the supreme kinsman redeemer. Now, what do I, what do I mean by this expression, Jesus is a kinsman redeemer? Well, Jesus came to earth to rescue people who were destitute. People like you and like me. Now, we may not be financially destitute. Maybe some of us are this Christmas Eve. But others of us have many gifts under the tree. We're not financially destitute. But the Bible describes us all as being spiritually destitute. The Bible says we're in deep trouble. And it's our sins that have gotten us into this trouble. Isaiah the prophet puts it this way in Isaiah 59 verse 2. He says, your iniquities, your sins have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. You see, friend, when we decide to go our own way instead of God's way, which is something we do many times in the, in the course of every day, when we do that, we pull away from God. We separate from God. And because God is the source of life, the penalty for pulling away from God is death, spiritual death. We die on the inside. And, and it gets worse. The Bible says if we're not rescued from that spiritual death in this world, that spiritual death becomes eternal death in the world to come. Our separation from God becomes permanent. And that's what Jesus, God's son, came to earth to rescue us from. But before Jesus could rescue us, he had to become one of us. R remember, a kinsman redeemer had to be a relative that's why Jesus, as it were, became a relative of ours when he was born in Bethlehem. And then 33 years later, he accomplished our rescue by paying the penalty for our sins, death. Jesus died in our place. Jesus paid the penalty that we should have paid when he laid down his life on the cross. And this Christmas Eve, I want to ask you the question, has Jesus ever become your kinsman redeemer? It's your choice. It's your invitation. Have you ever confessed your sins to God and acknowledged, God, I'm aware of the fact that these sins keep me at arm's length from you, a holy God? They leave me spiritually destitute, spiritually dead, a death that leads to eternal death, unless you rescue me. Unless you rescue, I want you to rescue me. Friends, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other major uh, world religion, from every other form of spirituality out there. See, see, every other system offers you a plan of redemption. If you do this, and you do this, and you do this, then possibly you can redeem yourself. So in Islam, it's the five pillars. In Hi Hinduism, it's the sevenfold path you're to follow. In Judaism, it's the Ten Commandments. You know, in self-help movements, it's the 12 steps of recovery. If you're in AA, it's some other steps if you're in some other program. Do this, do this, do this. Here's the plan of redemption. If you can do this, maybe you can redeem yourself. It's only Christianity that comes along and says, you know, you don't need just a plan of redemption. You need a redeemer. You need someone to jump in the water and pull you out. 
Have you ever asked Jesus to be the one to do that on your behalf? Kinsman Redeemer. Here's the second thing I want you to know about Bethlehem. Bethlehem, number two, was the home not just of the kinsman redeemer, but the home of the humble shepherd. And the Bible's recounting of the original Christmas story is found in Luke chapter 2. Joseph and a very pregnant Mary make their way to Bethlehem in order to register for a government census. While in Bethlehem, Mary gives birth to Jesus. She places him in a manger And this is where the shepherds enter the picture. So if you're following in your own Bible, I'm picking it up at verse 8 of Luke chapter 2, a familiar story to most of us. There were shepherds. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Hey, let's go to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So who who are the major characters in this drama? Well, you got baby Jesus, you got Joseph, you got Mary, you got angels, and then you got... Shepherds? What are shepherds doing in this story, this story of all stories? I mean, back in the day, back in the first century, they were at the bottom rung of the vocational status chart. Nobody wanted to grow up and be a shepherd, okay? It's a dirty job. And yet, in spite of the fact that it was such a lowly profession, interestingly, the Old Testament depicts God as a shepherd. A shepherd for his people. The most famous psalm, even if you don't know much of the Bible. I'll bet you know Psalm 23. Begins with the words, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Isaiah the prophet said something similar about God in Isaiah 40 verse 11. He said, God tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So over and over again, the Old Testament pictures God as a shepherd. But it not only pictures him as a shepherd, the Old Testament also says that God would one day send the world a Savior who would also be a shepherd. Now where would this Savior shepherd be born? Listen to the words of the prophet Micah, written 700 years before Jesus was born. This is Micah 5, verses 2 and 4. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock. He will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, meaning his sheep, 
will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. No wonder that lowly shepherds played such a key role in the Christmas story. See, they weren't just filler. They they weren't just thrown in as as an afterthought. They weren't extras on the, you know, the director had put into the movie for the crowd scene. The lowly shepherds pointed to the humble shepherd, the promised shepherd. They pointed to Jesus. So what do we learn about Jesus from this description of him as a shepherd? I I don't know about you, but I have never observed a shepherd, a real shepherd on the job. Have you? You ever seen a shepherd do his work? Some years ago, I happened to read a best-selling book that was written by a guy who understands shepherding. Philip Keller grew up in East Africa where he was surrounded by simple native sheep herders who operated much like their ancient counterparts in the Middle East. And then when Keller grew up, when he became a young man, he bought his first 30 ewes and he started a sheep ranch of his own. Keller's book, which has become a classic, a bestseller, is called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. So Keller, the author, he's the shepherd taking a look at the psalm that begins The Lord is my shepherd. And the main point of Keller's book, listen to this, is that people are like sheep, which is why he says we desperately need the Lord, we need Jesus to be our shepherd. In his book, Keller describes one problem after another that sheep face, and they sound a lot like the sorts of problems that people face. For example, sheep are constantly stalked by predators, Early on in his career as a sheep rancher, Keller got up one morning and he noted that a a cougar had been out terrorizing his sheep through the night. Now, the the, the cougar had not actually directly attacked any sheep, but had put them in such a frenzy, they had run around all night and nine of his ewes who, who had lambs, were carrying lambs, were dead from exhaustion. And Shepherd makes the, uh, Keller makes the point, You like those sheep? Are you like those sheep? Are are there troubles in your life that are terrorizing you, that are keeping you on the run, that are exhausting you? You're awake at night thinking about these things. You know, you need a shepherd. You need a shepherd. Another problem that sheep have to be delivered from, Keller says, is invasive pests. They get nasal flies and they get bot flies and warble flies. They get ticks. A shepherd has to periodically dip his sheep. He's got to immerse them in this very strong disinfectant. You ever need disinfecting personally? You ever need cleansing from pesky pests that have attached themselves to you like bad habits and character flaws, negative attitudes? Keller says you need a shepherd. Here's something else that shepherds do for their sheep. They break up relational conflicts. I'm not making this one up, by the way. There there are always some nasty sheep in the flock, according to Keller, that make life difficult for their woolly companions. So you got some nasties in your life? You need a shepherd. What about a sheep's daily provisions? Well, the shepherd sees to it that his flock is supplied with food in the form of green pastures. And Keller says green pastures don't just happen. They require a shepherd out there picking up rocks and tearing back brush, replanting grass seed because the sheep nibble it down so there's nothing left, irrigating the field. Who do we go to for daily provision? 
you know, not green grass, but you know, what are the deficiencies in your life right now, this Christmas Eve? What do you lack? You know, maybe you lack a job. Maybe you're facing a big decision and you lack wisdom. What do I do? Maybe you lack friends this time of year or good health. You need a shepherd who cares for you. And one final thing that shepherds do for their sheep, according to Keller, he says sheep have this tendency to wander off. And all a shepherd has to do is turn his back on the sheep for, for one minute and they will meander away. And they'll find some grassy spot where, where they'll overeat and they'll lie down for a nap and roll over on their back and when they, they wake up, they can't get up. Now this, you know, it sounds, it sounds rather amusing. Actually, it's deadly. Because while they're on their back, gases build up in their rumen and the gases cu cut off their blood circulation and the sheep will die unless the shepherd finds it pretty darn quick. And so Keller asks the question, you ever wander off into self-destructive paths? You ever get yourself in really deep trouble? You need a shepherd. You need a shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd. People need the humble shepherd who was born in Bethlehem, a town known for shepherds. Now, later in Jesus' ministry, John chapter 10 records him as saying to a large crowd, he said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. He said, I've come to give my sheep life and to give them life to the full. Yeah. Jesus doesn't just give life to his sheep. He gives fulfilling life. Now the question is, how do you know if you're one of Jesus' sheep? Earlier in that same chapter, John 10, verse 4, Jesus says, I'll tell you who my sheep are. My sheep are the ones who listen to my voice and follow me. How do you follow Jesus? You listen to his voice as recorded in God's word, and you do what it says. So are, are you following the shepherd? Do you have a shepherd? We all need a shepherd. Are you following this shepherd who was given to us in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? If following him begins on the day that you determine you're going to surrender your life to him. You're going to turn it over to him. He's going to become your shepherd. But then... Being a sheep of the shepherd continues as daily you listen to his voice recorded in this book and you put it into practice. Which is why at Christ Community Church, we're always encouraging you, get a hold of one of those Scripture Union Bible reading schedules. Make 2014 the year when you start to read the Bible for yourself. Or, or get into one of the 300 small groups, community groups we have around here. Men's groups, women's groups, couples groups, student groups, kids groups where you'll study the Bible and you'll apply it to your life. You'll listen to the shepherd's voice and you'll do what he says. You'll become a true follower of his. Bethlehem, it's the home of the kinsman redeemer. It's the home of the humble shepherd. Third and finally, it's the home of the eternal king. I've already referred to Micah's famous prophecy about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Again, let me say what's amazing about this prophecy is that it's made over 700 years before the event took place. Let me reread one verse of the amazing prophecy to you. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler... Ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now Bethlehem, as I've already told you, had been the home, hometown of a great ruler, King David. 
a descendant of Boaz and Ruth, Israel's most stellar king. But Micah was writing his prophecy about 200 years after David, and he had good news for his audience. The good news is this. God's about to send us another king like David. In fact, this king's going to be greater than David. Elsewhere in Micah's prophecy, he says, this king is going to rule over the entire earth, and it's going to be an eternal reign forever and ever. Friends, Jesus is that king. I love the closing line of Micah 5.2. I just read it to you. This king, who's going to be born in Bethlehem, will have origins from of old, from ancient times. Isn't that a weird prophecy? No, baby's going to be born in Bethlehem, and that little baby, it's going to be ancient. It's going to have existed in times past. Now, who fills that bill? See, Jesus comes on the scene, and during his earthly ministry, he tells a startled group of listeners. He says, you know, before Abraham was born, I am. The, the reason it startled them is Abraham had lived 2,000 years before Jesus. And they're scratching their head and saying, wait, wait a second, before this guy 2,000 years ago was born, you were around? See, Jesus is the eternal king promised by the prophet Micah. Now, the setting up of his ultimate kingdom is still in the future when Jesus returns a second time to earth. But friends, those who bow their knee to Jesus today, those who claim Jesus to be their king today begin to experience a taste of his kingdom today. In fact, their number one priority, those who have claimed Jesus as king, their number one priority is to live like citizens of his kingdom. And then to invite others to join them to enter into the kingdom. Let me ask you this Christmas Eve. Is Jesus your king? Are you living with the values of, of this king in mind? I was in Chicago uh, last week. I love to go into the city to celebrate Christmas. As I tell you the story, I'm going to ask for our bands to come out on the platforms of our campuses. We're going to sing a few carols in just a moment, but there I am in Chicago at one of my favorite places, Millennium Park, where I can look at the ice skaters. You know, I look, I don't try to skate because I would be on my keister most of the time. And as, I, as I'm watching them, I can't believe my ears. Okay, there's music blaring from the speakers and it's all Christmas music until all of a sudden I perk up. Am I hearing this right? Those are the words to the famous hymn, How Great Thou Art. Now, if you're not familiar with a hymn, you need to know How Great Thou Art is not a Christmas song. It's got nothing to do with Christmas. And so I'm wondering to myself, okay, what Christ follower slipped this into the playlist, you know? I mean, somebody's messing with the, the ice skating people here. I'm watching them skate. I'm watching them sip hot cocoa. I'm watching them laugh. I'm watching them sprawl across the ice. And in the background, here are the lyrics over the loudspeaker. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation to take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I will bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great thou art. One day, Scripture says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now for some, that will be a forced admission. Too late. But for those who know Jesus as king in this life, they will bow in humble adoration. They will be eager to bring him their praise. And so again, I was in, 
watching this surreal experience of people oblivious to the lyrics that Jesus is king. And what it brought to mind, my mind was this, friends. How, how many of us go through every day skating along with hardly a thought that Jesus is king? You know, go, we go from entertainment to entertainment, from job to job, from friend to friend, and Jesus is hardly a part of it. Jesus came to earth to be a king. Jesus wants to be your king this Christmas season. How do you make Jesus, how do you make Jesus your kinsman redeemer? How do you make him your shepherd? How do you make him your king? It's your decision, actually. And you make that decision in prayer, which is why I'm going to ask you right now at all four campuses, would you just bow your heads with me? Just for a moment, bow your head, close your eyes. Let me give you a quiet moment. And I want to pray the sort of prayer that allows you, if you're praying this from your heart, if you're able to repeat these words in your heart and, and mean them, it allows you to invite Jesus to become your redeemer, your shepherd, your king. Jesus, I just want to say from my heart that I realize it's my sins that have kept me distant from a holy God. And it's these sins that deserve death because I've unplugged from the giver of life. And that spiritual death that I deserve could become eternal death if it's not fixed. So right now, I want to confess my sins to you. I want to forsake them. I want to turn my back on them, and I want to embrace Jesus as my Redeemer. Jesus, I want you to rescue me. I want you to jump in the water and save me. Because of what you did on the cross, taking the penalty my sins deserve, death, I realize you can give me life, real life, that begins today as a gift, forgiveness. That's what I want for my life. And I want you to be my shepherd. I don't want this to be a, a one-shot decision. I want you to lead my life. I want you to provide for me and protect me. I want to listen to your word. I want this next year to be a, a year in which I learn my way around your book so I can hear your voice. And I want you to be my king. In fact, right now, I'm going to get off the throne of my life where I've been ruler far too long and I'm going to make you king. I want to follow you. I want to walk in obedience to you. Now, as every head's bowed and eyes are still closed at our four campuses, I want to give you an opportunity to do something tangible. If you prayed that prayer, and you're thinking as you're praying it from your heart, you know, this is the first time I've said something like this to God and really meant it. Okay, some of us have said this before, and we began a relationship with Jesus as shepherd Redeemer King some time ago. But if this is new to you and you're saying, you know, I just prayed this really and meant it for the first time, I want you to do something tangible. I want you to stick your hand in the air for one second and then put it back down on your lap. Just a way of saying, yep, that's what I did. All four campuses, wherever you are, if this is a prayer you pray from your heart, just, okay, I see the hands going up. Just put a hand up and then put it back down in your lap. Give you a couple more seconds. At our other campuses as well, in Bartlett and Blackberry Creek, DeKalb, as well as here in St. Charles, if you want Jesus to be your shepherd, your redeemer, your king, hand in the air and then back down. 
Lord God, I believe that uh, Christmas can be the best time of the year when it's accompanied by a decision like many people in this auditorium and in our other three auditoriums have just made. And that is to install you as king on the throne of their lives, to cry out to you for a rescue, to say to you, I want you to lead my life like my shepherd should. And I just thank you for sending us Jesus that first Christmas. We pray in his name. Amen.